Diamonds are supposed to be symbols of love, commitment, and joyful new beginnings. But for so many people in diamond-rich countries, these sparkling stones are more a curse than a blessing. Too often, the world's diamonds mines produce not only diamonds, but also civil wars, violence, worker exploitation, environmental degradation, and unspeakable human suffering. This statement was taken verbatim from the website BrilliantEarth.com, which was at the same time trying to sell me so-called beyond conflict-free diamonds. Does anyone else see the irony in this? No single diamond can be described as, quote, beyond conflict-free, because the origins of some of these stones are simply ambiguous, while some of them are drenched in the blood of the people from whichever country they come from. This is Society of Strife. This week, we'll look at diamonds from Angola. We'll look at how they enabled the enslavement of a people and fueled the civil war that came soon after. We'll even look at the aftermath of the conflict and how, even after all these years, Angola struggles with corruption, thanks in part to the diamond industry. If you like this show, please give us a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes. And if you like this show so much that you can't help but want to support it, you can do so on buymeacoffee.com slash societyofstrife or patreon.com slash societyofstrife. Any help would be appreciated. Additionally, you can follow the show on Instagram at societyofstrifepodcast and Twitter at Society of Strife. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Among the African invaders, Portugal was the first to arrive and the last to leave. The Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama reached Angola as early as 1948. When he first arrived, the local Africans in the area were quite happy to see him, as it was back then. But before long, a mutually beneficial trading relationship had turned into a predatory demand for slaves to work the plantations and mines of Portugal's growing colony in Brazil. Throughout most of the 18th century, there was an estimated 1 million Africans working on Brazilian sugar plantations. Many of them had come from Angola as slaves. All in all, it is estimated that over 3 million African people were forcefully taken to the Western Hemisphere through Angolan ports. By the end of the 19th century, Brazil was gone, having attained its independence. But Portugal, one of the smallest and weakest countries in Europe, controlled an African landmass 20 times its own size. By the mid-20th century, other African countries had begun attaining independence, and the winds of political change were quickly picking up speed. But the Portuguese didn't seem to notice. Angola was an essential source of raw material, minerals, coffee, and land for Portuguese settlers. Despite the increasing turmoil across Africa as other countries fought for their independence, the Portuguese settler population was actually growing. From 44,000 in 1940 to 179,000 by the year 1960. 
If you want to know what the mentality of the Portuguese towards the local African population was, it can be summed up by someone who later became the Prime Minister of Portugal, a man by the name Marcelo Caetano. Just before he became Prime Minister, Caetano said, quote, The natives of Africa must be directed and organized by Europeans, but are as indispensable as auxiliaries. The blacks must be seen as productive elements, organized or to be organized in an economy directed by whites. End quote. Part of this so-called organization that Marcelo Caetano was referring to was set up without much in the way of education or health services to back it up in the diamond industry. Diamonds were first discovered in Angola in the northeastern Luanda province in 1912, and in 1917, the Compania de Diamantes de Angola, also known as Diamang, was formed to begin mining mainly in Luanda province and the Kuango Valley to the west. Ownership of these mines was shared between Portuguese, British, Belgian and American investors, no Africans, of course. The early diamonds were mainly alluvial, meaning that they came from riverbeds and were subsequently panned from these sources. But as time went by, the Portuguese discovered that the diamonds were also underground, namely in over 300 kimberlite pipes. Kimberlite is a type of volcanic rock that sometimes contains diamonds and other gemstones. It is named after the, the town of Kimberley, South Africa, where the discovery of an 83.5 carat diamond called the Star of South Africa led to a diamond rush. Angolan diamonds vary in quality, but a relatively high proportion of them are gemstones. This meant that diamonds were an important part of the colony's output and, in time, they became both a cause for unrest and a means to control it. In 1947, Diamang had 17,500 African workers, of whom almost a third were provided by quote, intervention of the authorities, end quote, in a convoy of forced labor. Wages paid in cash and in kind typically averaged 830 angolas a year, which is about $25 in today's currency. Can we just Stop for a second and understand the magnitude of this. A third were unpaid, while the rest, that's two-thirds, were paid $25 a year. If that wasn't slavery, tell me what is. Serious civil unrest began in the 1950s and a full-fledged civil war for independence broke out in 1961, shaped and fought by three different armed guerrilla movements. The first, the MPLA, or the Movimento Popular de Libertação de Angola had Marxist roots and was quick to spread its revolt across the north of the colony. The second, the Frente Nacional de Libertação de Angola, or the FNLA, drew its support from the, from the newly independent Congo and later China. Both movements got their strength from particular ethnic groups, as did a third, in 1966, one of the FNLA leaders, 31-year-old Jonas Savimbi, broke away and created his own movement, the Uniao para la Independencia Total de Angola, 
or UNITA, with Marxist overtones appropriate for any African liberation movement in the 1960s. For several years, neither Savimbi nor his movement was taken seriously. Angolan watcher Basil Davidson wrote in 1972 that, quote, reports by Finnish, Italian, West German, and OAU, which is currently the AU or African Union, observers in eastern districts unanimously concluded that UNITA had become, by 1970, little more than another distracting sideshow, end quote. Whether this was true at the time, or just wishful thinking, it proved over time to be very, very wrong, as we shall see in this episode. By 1966, Diamonds were providing Portugal with 5% of the colony's revenue and had become a major factor in paying for a war that would continue for another eight years. Everything changed in 1974. In 1974, Marcelo Caetano, who had since become the Prime Minister of Portugal, was overthrown by the military in what came to be known as the Carnation Revolution owing to the fact that no shots were fired during the coup. This coup had nothing to do with Angola's struggle for independence, but it led to the independence of Angola in 1975. Among the three liberation movements, there was a scramble. Savimbi recognized the importance of the movement, dropping his recently adopted pro-China Maoist rhetoric in favor of a pro-West multiracial stance. Before everything fell apart, the three parties tried to enter a four-way transitional government with Portugal, but failed almost immediately. The Chinese and the Americans supported the FNLA, but Russia Worried by the move by the Chinese and the Americans, quickly sent support to the MPLA, which also received support from Cuba in the form of training, money, weapons, and combat troops. South Africa also joined the fight, sending direct military support to UNITA and ordering its army across the border into Angola. Due to a lack of resistance, the South African army quickly made its way towards the Angolan capital, Luanda. Unfortunately for the South Africans, the Cubans caught wind of the South African troop movements and quickly cobbled together an airlift, an airlift for their own MPLA troops. The two sides met in battle at the outskirts of Luanda and the MPLA declared victory and occupied Luanda. By the arrival of the official Independence Day in November 1975, The MPLA had become the de facto government of the People's Republic of Angola and the South African Defence Forces had withdrawn from the country. Just like that, the war for independence was over. But on the other hand, the Diamond Wars were just getting started. The new war began in 1976 and was by and large part of a proxy war between the Soviet, between the Soviets and the West. In the immediate post-independence period, the MPLA government strengthened its position with large infusions of Soviet equipment and military personnel. Cuba also provided assistance in the form of equipment and troops, which rose from 4,000 in 1978 to 
to around 21,000 by 1981. Under the Carter administration, the US provided limited indirect support to UNITA, but there was also assistance from China, France, and Morocco. South Africa was also supporting UNITA, but this was guaranteed because of growing MPLA support for liberation movements in Southwest Africa and in South Africa. You have to understand that at this time, South Africa was under an apartheid regime that saw the rise of Africans under the MPLA as a threat to its own system, which taught that blacks were inferior to whites. With the election of Ronald Reagan, the US and South African military support for UNITA increased. In return, Soviet and Cuban support for the MPLA also increased. By 1985, there were 950 Soviet officers and 45,000 Cuban troops in Angola. Some writing, however, was on the wall. Zimbabwe gained independence and Namibia did too. As a result, there was a growing pressure for peace talks so as not to destabilize the entire region. A 1988 agreement finally saw the beginning of the end of foreign troops. Cold War fighting continued, but far away in Germany, where a wall that had stood for that had stood for 28 years was collapsing. More talks became imperative for both UNITA and the MPLA, and the 1991 ceasefire eventually led to elections the following year. Jonas Savimbi fully expected to win those elections and become president, but when he lost, instead of acknowledging defeat and nursing his bruised ego, he restarted the war. By now, the Cold War was over. Both parties had lost their allies, and South Africa was no longer under an, under an apartheid regime. Both the MPLA and UNITA focused greater attention on domestic resources for weaponry, namely oil and diamonds. UNITA had begun exploiting diamonds in the 1970s and in 1984 had overrun key diamond areas in the Kuango Valley, exporting about $4 million worth of gems that year. That was only the beginning. In 1985, it attacked the state-owned Empresa Nacional de Diamantes de Angola or Endiama diamond sorting facility in the town of Andrada, now known as Nzaji, seriously reducing government exports. By 1993, UNITA had taken most of the best diamond areas and by 1996 was exporting a staggering $1 million worth of gems every day by using forced unpaid labor and child labor. For its part, the government depended on lucrative sales of oil. Peace talks and another ceasefire combined with the arrival of thousands of UN peacekeepers, did little to keep the warring factions apart. Although by 1998, it was abundantly clear that the aggressor and the party with the least, with the least claim to legitimacy was UNITA. UNITA was fighting a civil war just because of the ambitions of one man who had refused to concede the simple fact that he had lost an election. An arms embargo had been established in 1993 and in 1997 additional sanctions froze UNITA bank accounts and prohibited the travel of senior UNITA officials. Violence and brutality escalated 
nonetheless. Powered by diamonds and hundreds of thousands of Angolan nationals died as a result. Finally, in 1998, recognizing the importance of diamonds to the war's continu continuation, the UN Security Council placed a worldwide ban on the purchase of diamonds from UNITA or UNITA-controlled areas. Only diamonds certified by the government of Angola could now be traded legally. This was too little and too late, as many of the UN's escapades in Africa can be described. After 37 years of war, more than 300,000 Angolans were dead, and hundreds of thousands more had died indirectly. For example, through starvation and disease. Millions were displaced, and the country's infrastructure, seriously underdeveloped at the time of independence, had now been completely destroyed. 200,000 people had been disabled by land had been disabled by landmines. More than two-thirds of the population lived on less than a dollar a day, and three out of ten children died before their fifth birthday. Yet, amidst the carnage and sanctions, the conflict persisted, and the channels funneling UNITA diamonds out to world markets and bringing weapons back in were among the few things still actually running in Angola. In 1999, partly due to its inability to function, the last UN peacekeepers withdrew. Part of the reasoning, which was evident to everyone apart from the UN Security Council, was that the sanctions weren't working. A conflict, once funded by Cold War adversaries and external supporters, was now being funded by natural resources, and at the center of those resources lay the country's diamonds. After independence, the MPLA had nationalized Diamang and created a new company, Endiama, otherwise known as the Empresa de Nacional de Diamantes de Angola, with De Beers contracted to manage the country's mines, a relationship that lasted a couple of years. Through the 1990s, however, UNITA exercised continuing control over major parts of the diamond areas, affecting formal production and government revenues and taking what it needed for itself. During ceasefires, there was increased formal mining carried out by registered companies combined with informal mining carried out by local villagers using hand tools or panning methods. Some of the diamonds derived from this informal mining were sold legally through government channels. Some were sold through UNITA and some were smuggled out to the Congo in well-established traditional diamond smuggling operations. In a good year, Ndiyama might be expected to export between $200 and $300 million, although this was less than half of what was actually mined. This was a different story in a bad year. In one of those bad years, 1993, the government only exported around $35 million. Although UNITA represented the biggest drain, there was also a high level of Angolan army collusion with smugglers, going as far as to collude with UNITA. During its most profitable years, UNITA ran a complex mining, sorting, and marketing operation. It operated a quote-unquote Ministry of Natural Resources and used a variety of techniques 
to extract diamonds. In most cases, it was able to run standard labor-intensive diamond mining operations over wide areas and for long periods. In other areas, it stayed in an area for as long as it was safe and then moved on. Sometimes, it wouldn't even do that much. Instead, it would raid civilians who engaged in mining activities and companies in government-held areas. For a time, UNITA also operated a formal sales structure and it even held tenders at its headquarters until 1999. When the UNSC sanctions landed, a polite fiction developed. Governments providing or allowing arms shipments to UNITA would stop. Nighttime aircraft providing weapons to Angola would be grounded. Companies buying blood diamonds from UNITA would cease doing so. Offending bank, bank accounts would be examined by accommodating governments in Europe and the Caribbean and if deemed necessary, closed. The idea that the UNSC would, would commit a few words to paper and then expect anybody to follow them was laughable at best. This was made clear in a report published by the British NGO Global Witness. The report, titled A Rough Trade, the role of companies and governments in the Angolan conflict laid much of the responsibility for the deaths of an estimated half million people during the 1990s at the feet of the world's diamond industry. It blasted the willing disregard of, the, of UN sanctions by the governments of diamond trading and purchasing countries. A rough trade stated that, quote, since 1992, UNITA has consistently controlled 60-70% to 70 of Angola's diamond production, generating $3.7 billion in revenue, enabling them to maintain their war effort. End quote. The report went on to state, quote, UNITA's diamonds reach the major international markets through a worldwide diamond industry that operates with little transparency or scrutiny from the international community. End quote. The global witness pointed the finger directly at De Beers, whose annual reports during the 1990s boasted of the company's ability to mop up, quote-unquote, open-market Angolan diamonds. All that means is those diamonds not marketed via Endiama. And as we've come to learn, most diamonds that weren't sold by Endiama came from Unita. For those who don't know, I should point out that De Beers was founded, in part, by famous Anglo-supremacist Cecil Rhodes, whose statue at the Oxford University grounds continues to draw criticism from both its students and faculty members. In 1992, De Beers chairman stated, quote, that we should have been able to buy some two-thirds of the increased supply from Angola is testimony, not only to our financial strength, but to the infrastructure and experience and experienced personnel we have put in place." End quote. In 1993, he spoke of measures taken quote, in the second half of 1992 to restrict sales while at the same time making substantial purchases of diamonds, mainly Angolan, on the open market. End quote. In the early 1990s, out of every three diamond pieces sold globally, two are from the beers. He had made the whole world culpable to 
his and the company's unethical business practices, and yet he continued to make such statements to his shareholders, knowing fully well that they were purchasing blood diamonds. In 1995, the same De Beers chairman spoke of, quote, the substantially increased production of Angolan diamonds, mainly the higher gem qualities, coming from the outside market, of which the De Beers CSO had successfully bought up two-thirds. End quote. The 1996 De Beers annual report said that external buying in 1996, quote, reached record levels, largely owing to the increases in Angolan production. Angolan diamonds tend to be in the categories that are in demand, although in the main, these buying activities are a mechanism to support the market. End quote. According to author Ian Smiley in his book, Blood on the Stone, a better term might have been to protect the market instead of support the market. This was because at an average of half a billion dollars worth of diamonds each year, between 1992 and 1998, Unita's haul represented almost 10% of world production. Had the beers allowed it to fall into other hands, the effect on the global price of diamonds would have been catastrophic. Facts like these tend to make people believe the rumors that the beers used to hold back the supply of diamonds to keep the global price of diamonds from falling, and that diamonds aren't really rare because if they were, the beers wouldn't have had to hold back supply. The Global Witness Report also blamed Belgium due to Antwerp's open market for diamonds. It also blamed the Angolan government for sloppy management of its certification system. In early 1999, the UNSC called Global Witness staff to New York and for the first time in history, an NGO provided the UNSC with a briefing on an international crisis. The United Nations Security Council, now aware that its decisions were being ignored, decided in May 1999 to establish an independent panel of experts to look into how the sanctions were being violated, who was violating them, and what could be done. When the UN panel of experts reported back in March 2000, it corroborated the global witness analysis of the Belgian situation. Its reports said that, quote, the extremely lax controls and regulations governing the Antwerp market facilitate and perhaps even encourage illegal trading activity, end quote. It went on to say that, quote, the Belgium authorities have failed to establish an effective import identification regime with respect to diamonds, nor has any effective Effort been made to monitor the activities of suspect brokers, dealers, and traders, virtually all of whom appear to be able to travel freely and operate without hindrance. End quote. As one African courier said, quote, Smuggling is not risky. I have been doing it nearly my whole life. My contacts will guarantee free passage at the airport at home, and once you're on the plane, the job is done. I am never checked for diamonds when I enter Belgium. To sell my diamonds, I just go to one of the diamond dealers in Pelicanstrat and present myself at the counter with my batch of stones. The dealers are always friendly and take me to a room in the back and serve me something to drink. They even offer to arrange a place for me to stay in Antwerp. End quote. 
The diamonds did not all go straight from UNITA-controlled territories in Angola to Antwerp. Many made stops along the way, and the UN took advantage of that by naming heads of state for their complicity. Such revelations would have been impossible in the past, but Angola Sanctions Committee Chairman Robert Fowler was disgusted by the, by the flagrancy with which sanctions were being ignored. Robert Fowler was Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. He had previously served as the Deputy Minister of Defence and had, and had advised three Canadian Prime Ministers on foreign policy. As they say, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to stand by and do nothing. Well, Fowler wasn't going to stand by and do nothing as the evil of blood diamonds triumphed. He understood that after so many years of war and so many useless resolutions, the UN's reputation was on the line. One of those named in the report was Burkina Faso's President Blaise Compaore, who had personally provided a safe haven for transactions between UNITA and Antwerp-based diamond dealers. President Nasingbe Eadema of Togo, then Africa's longest-serving head of state, provided a similar safe haven in return for a share of the booty. And until his overthrow as the president of Congo, Mobutu Seseko did the same. For Jonas Savimbi, these were business arrangements, nothing more, nothing less. The deaths of half a million Angolans was nothing more but a footnote in his book of quote-unquote revolution of Angola. For Kompaore, Mobutu and Ayadema, it is hard to imagine that they were anything more than business arrangements either. UNITA also moved diamonds through South Africa, Namibia and Zambia, where controls were either lax or non-existent. In Zambia, buyers handed out leaflets at gas stations in border towns, offering to pay their highest prices for diamonds and gold. Once valued by the Zambian Mines and Development Department, the diamonds were effectively laundered and on their way to legitimate markets, complete with Zambian certificates. Other diamond traders from the Congo, Zambia and elsewhere were licensed by UNITA to travel in UNITA-held territories in order to buy UNITA-approved diamonds. In return, they paid fees as high as $35,000 a month. Weapons are larger and more cumbersome than diamonds, but they were not much harder to bring in than diamonds were to send out. First, they had to be obtained, which was easy enough following the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Eastern Europe was awash with cheap armaments which Savimbi was able to purchase. Ironically, most of these weapons may have been destined for his enemy, the MPLA. Savimbi bought from a variety of sources, mainly in Ukraine, Moldova, and Bulgaria. Arms brokers based in the UAE, Cyprus, Panama, Gibraltar, Britain, Israel, and the Bahamas made the deals, and weapons going in followed the same routes that diamonds followed going out. Blaze Compaore provided Burkina Faso and user certificates and transshipment stops. Fake Togolese and Guinean and user certificates were also used. Mobutu Seseko provided transit stops and fake paperwork for years, while Paul Kagame 
president of Rwanda after the genocide, assisted because, like Jonas Savimbi, he hated Laurent Kabila, the man who had overthrown Mobutu Sasiseko. Planes loaded with supplies also took off from South Africa's Lanseria Airport, with flight plans for Zambia, but changed course as soon as they entered Zambian airspace. Instead, they'd head to UNITA headquarters at Andulo in central Angola. Flights from Europe stopped at Khartoum, Goma, Niamtugu in northern Togo, and Nairobi, with final destinations given as the Congo, Tanzania, or other places that were unconnected to Angola and UNITA. There was no shortage of small aeroplanes, fake registrations, and false flight plans. Most of these small aeroplanes were owned by the infamous Victor Boot. A report prepared for the UN Security Council in 2001 described Boot as a former Russian Air Force officer thought to be connected to Russian organized crime and the operator of the largest fleet of Antonov aircraft in the world. Boot was 34 back then and yet he had several passports and was supplying military equipment to a variety of conflicts around the world, particularly in Africa. Victor Boot was a man who had fully taken advantage of the fall of the Soviet Union and thoroughly enriched himself by fueling conflict around the globe. He based his companies in the UAE and registered his aircraft in countries that were all too willing to sell their names for a handful of dollars. In 2002, Boot was finally banned from entering the UAE and a Belgian arrest warrant was issued for money laundering and criminal conspiracy involving arms trafficking, diamonds, and currency counterfeiting. Before he was arrested, Boot retreated, retreated to Moscow, where he was afforded high-level political protection. In 2000, the Security Council expert panel on Angola was reconstituted as a monitoring mechanism and continued to report through 2000 and 2002. The BS had by then halted all purchases from the quote-unquote outside market. Despite this change and despite the naming of African heads of state who were complicit in the sale of blood diamonds, UNITA diamonds continued to find their way into the legitimate trade. At least 300 million in 1999 and 100 million dollars in 2000. They were now more incognito and took new routes, but the laundering was facilitated by a vast network of shell companies created by established buyers in Europe, Israel, and the United States. Unita blood diamonds were moved through conventional tax havens where record keeping was lax and then declared as originating in countries that were nothing more than transit stops. Countries like Rwanda and Uganda, which had no diamond or diamond mines of their own, were declared as the origin of gems going to Antwerp. In 2000, Tanzania, which does have a diamond industry of its own, exported $1.7 million worth of diamonds to Belgium, according to the Tanzanian Ministry of Mines. According to the Belgian Ministry of Economics, however, Recorded imports from Tanzania were worth $11.5 million that year. The average diamond in Tanzania is worth about $140 a carat, but the Belgian figures indicated that they had recorded imports of almost 
$600 a carat diamonds. An indication that these diamonds couldn't possibly have been Tanzanian in origin. In 2001, the government of Zambia told UNSC monitors that no diamonds had been exported out of the country since 1998 and that it did not believe there was any smuggling of diamonds through its country. It is important to mention that Zambia itself is not a producer of diamonds. Keep this in mind because between February and May 2001, the government of Belgium recorded diamond exports from Zambia valued at $13.3 million with an average per carat value of $375. The UN monitors were appalled by the continuing flow of illicit diamonds from Angola and into the legitimate trade. In October 2001, they reported that while UNITA exports had declined, around $1 million and $1.2 million worth of diamonds were smuggled out of Angola each day representing figures of around 350 and 420 million dollars a year. This was despite an embargo being in place which prohibited all exports except those certified by the government. The monitors said that the primary responsibility for intercepting diamonds mined in defiance of the UNSC embargo clearly lay with governments and yet huge volumes representing 5% of the global trade in diamonds were reaching markets across the world without facing any obstacles whatsoever. Quote, no diamond dealer, the monitors said, has claimed to have witnessed Angolan gems being, tra being traded on any diamond market. These diamonds de seem to have vanished into thin air after leaving Angola. How is this possible given the magnitude of the trade which is close to the output of Australia or Namibia. Perhaps more importantly, why is it possible for diamonds to vanish?" End quote. According to Ian Smiley, the answers were simple enough. In his book, Blood on the Stone, he writes that a large part of the trade in rough diamonds has always been illegal and because governments didn't care, they did not bother to address the issue. Consequently, they had few mechanisms and little expertise to deal with the problem. On occasion, it had fallen to companies like DBS to handle large and specific problems of diamond smuggling in order to protect their pockets and world prizes as it did in Sierra Leone and Liberia in the 1950s and as it did in the 1990s when it bought up the blood diamonds flowing from Angola. It was these illicit smuggler-plagued underbelly of the diamond industry that created blood diamonds. Jonas Savimbi did not need to invent smuggling routes, nor did he apply any pressure to diamond traders around the globe. Many were already buying illegal and blood-soaked diamonds. It's just that nobody cared. When the war resumed in 1998, Unita no longer controlled some of the best mining areas in the Kuango Valley where 90% of diamonds mined were gem quality, although it did keep up its mining and raiding activities. Then, in February 2002, Jonas Savimbi was caught in an ambush by government forces in Mexico province. 
He was subsequently killed and displayed under a tree in the hot Angolan sun. With him, he had one suitcase containing diamonds and another filled with dollars. Following his death, the government offered UNITA a ceasefire agreement, which it readily accepted. And that was that, or was it? With the end of UNITA as a fighting force, Angola faced new challenges. One of these challenges was corruption, especially in the army. Some officers had become used to running their own illicit mining operations, while others had long since been used to doing side deals with traders inside and outside the country, and even with UNITA. To this day, diamonds continue to be a pain where Angola is concerned. People continue to languish in poverty, while the elite continuously milk the country out of its natural resources, and when the money does come in, it is swiftly stolen by politicians. And the worst thing is, nothing can be done unless by Angolans themselves. In 2021, Angola continues to be one of the least transparent countries in the world. As Rafael Marquez, a journalist and anti-corruption activist, put it, quote, the end of the war in Angola means that right now, the main, the main institution in the country is corruption. The system is rotten to the core, and until you change the entire system, nothing will change. End quote. The government's reaction to such charges, whether from journalists or the IMF, is lawsuits, contracts to PR firms to help burnish the country's image, and outpourings of heart denial. As then-Secretary-General of the ruling party said, quote, We do not deserve the labels that certain foreign entities are trying to place on Angolan institutions and the country's foremost officials. Those that do not wish to make any efforts to help Angola consolidate peace should at least keep quiet. Instead of trying to discourage those that have shown a great human spirit and are doing their best to save lives, end quote. Nice speech. But whose lives is he referring to? The full extent of the tragedy of Angola's civil war may never be known. Between the 1970s and 2002, close to a million or more people died, and generations lived in abject poverty in a country blessed by nature with abundant natural resources. Most of the blame for the civil war can be laid at the feet of Jonas Savimbi, a man who, with the blessing of the US Central Intelligence Agency and the blessing of the then white supremacist South Africa, transformed himself into a brutal warlord who cared not for his people. A skilled and charismatic guerrilla leader, Savimbi ended his days trading diamonds with criminals in exchange for weapons and money which he then used to almost wipe out his people. Former US President Ronald Reagan gave Jonas Savimbi Stinger missiles and called him, quote, Africa's Abraham Lincoln, end quote. Jean Kirkpatrick, the US ambassador to the UN under Ronald Reagan, once used these words while toasting Savimbi, quote, linguist, philosopher, poet, political warrior, Savimbi has admired us the world over, and I have long been one of them. He is one of the few authentic heroes of our time. End quote. As for me, I have but one question for you. When you look at whatever piece of jewelry you own, 
Does it have any diamonds? If it does, do you know their origin? Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode and would like to learn more on the subject, I recommend reading Ian Smiley's Blood on the Stone. I found it to be invaluable while researching this episode. Please give us a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts iTunes and if you can, support the show on buymeacoffee.com forward slash society of strife or patreon.com slash society of strife. Please join me next week as we continue the story of blood diamonds. It's been a pleasure. Goodbye and stay safe.